Uh, and thank you all so much for joining. This is the uh, Cognitive Bias Podcast live, uh, coming to you live from Media, Pennsylvania, the Mission District in San Francisco, and many, many other places. Indonesia, apparently, we have people joining. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, so I want to lay a couple ground rules uh, here before we begin. Um, so uh, our guest today is Margot Stern. I will let her introduce herself and give you all of her bona fides uh, in a second, but um, Margo and I are going to chat for a bit, and then we're going to um, throw to y'all for some questions. And the way we're going to do that is, if you can type your question into the chat, and please either type in all tech in all caps text if you want me to read the question, or in all caps video if you want to like unmute and ask your question directly. Um, but the all caps is a big deal because it makes it way easier to scroll through and see what is and isn't a question. Um, so with that, I will let uh, Margot uh, tell us a little bit about herself. Sure. Oh, what to say? Um, so hello, I'm, uh, I'm Margot Stern. I'm a content strategist at Facebook. Um, and before that, I was at Twitter. And before that, I was at Google. And before that, I spent about a decade in advertising. Um, my focus in content strategy has been historically always in accessibility. Um, that's kind of been my side hustle in addition to my core work. Um, but about two years or about a year and a half into my tenure at Facebook, I went to our VP and I said, I want to try and tackle some of these things that are making the headlines. Um, I want to work on the hardest problems that we have to solve. Um, so I moved over to the integrity team. So I've been working on various integrity efforts, um, for the last almost two years. Um, and including things like, um, primarily focusing on pages and when integrity efforts around pages, but also kind of misinformation and general harms. Uh, I also have a focus on low digital literacy, which is a talk that I'm working on that I'll be presenting at Button next month. Yay, I will I see you there. I, I, I'm gonna take an opportunity to plug Button right here. So yeah. Button is a conference uh, run by our good friends, Christina Halverson and Tanessa Gamelke, who um, do Confab. Uh, this is the more UX-oriented content strategy, product content strategy, UX writing, whatever you want to call it, version of uh, Confab. And uh, I'll be doing like a book club thing with Andy Walflay and Scott Kuby and all those good folks. And Margo's going to be talking um, about what's the topic again? Low digital literacy. So designing low digital literacy. So that's, literacy. Yeah, uh, very, very <laughs> important topic. So button conference, just Google that. It'll, it'll pop up. Uh, definitely want to plug that. Um, so one thing I want to jump back to before we jump into the integrity bit, I hadn't realized that you had worked at like three of the big, like yeah. big name, like, and I'm just, my, my, the, the question that immediately comes to mind is just high level, like from a culture perspective or a flavor perspective, like what are the kind of different like tones and flavors that like each of those what, what was it like working? What was different about working at each of those places? I feel like I want to check who's on the call before I. <laughs> <laughs> feel, feel be, be as, as, as diplomatic as, as you yeah. need. <laughs> so, I mean, for me, like, I, going to Google was crazy because after being in advertising, I didn't know anything about technology. I didn't even know the difference between like Android and iOS. <laughs> like, I knew nothing. Um, and the hiring process there was so robust and so difficult and it was one of the more difficult things I'd ever done. I think because of that and like more of what they told you, like I felt like I was working with everyone who was at the top of their game, um, which forced me to learn a lot and forced me to be smarter. I would feel 
often at the end of the day, like exhausted because I knew so much more than I knew at the beginning of the day. Um, from a content strategy point of view, it was a real, it was a, it was, and I think from what I understand still continues to be um, a burgeoning discipline and that it hasn't really established itself. It isn't centralized. So there are a lot of people in many different places who are doing content strategy and writing. Um, so when I moved to Twitter, I kind of expected the same thing. Again, like Google was my first big tech company and I thought all tech companies were the same. Um, I was surprised at how small Twitter was um, and also that how small the user base, but also how small the company was. Um, it was kind of a bit more scrappy. Um, you know, it felt like you could fit the entire company in one room. And that was, I mean, one large room, but still one room. Sure. Um, similarly with the content strategy, um, it was really hadn't existed. It was something that I intended to, to develop and build, um, but it wasn't as kind of supported as I, as I wanted it to be. Um, and then Facebook is just an entirely different animal. Um, I think from a content strategy point of view, obviously I still think it's, I mean, it is the biggest team in the world. It's one of the best ones out there there. Um, and then similarly, I think that it's just, you've got really, really, really smart people and a much more, an incredibly diverse set of, of people working on problems um, and ways to solve them. So, you know, to that, like, tell me a little more about the integrity team, because that's something I don't know that a lot of people even realize is a thing. So yeah. like at, at Facebook, so tell me what that is. I wish I could speak more to the history of it, but it did kind of come up in and around kind of as a name and an org, I believe more around Cambridge Analytica. Um, mm. So I, I think that's true, but it is a, a quite a large org and it is segmented. It's both segmented and centralized, right? So it's like, you're gonna have in Instagram integrity, pages integrity, which is where I work, um, civic integrity, various different organizations. And then there's like kind of a, we all still are comparing notes and sharing with one another. Um, and what I, how I view it is that our intent is to really protect the people who are using the product. Um, and when I started on integrity, it was really mind blowing in terms of, there were harms that I knew about, like I knew about misinformation. I knew about, you know, kind of how people would break the law. I had no idea how kind of nefarious and how bad people can be, um, and the way that they do that. Um, it, one of the last things that I started working on before I moved off um, was rooms integrity for child safety specifically, mm. um, which was a, like, I don't want to talk about it too much because it's, it's way too intense for a Monday afternoon. Um, but really understanding the harms that were happening there and what we could do to prevent them. Um, it was, it wasn't something that everyone could work on. And there were a couple of kind of strategists I know who, tap themselves out. They said, I just, I can't do this. And me, I said, okay, I, I feel like I have the resilience and the ability and the interest in solving these problems. Let me do it. Yeah. And that's something I don't think we, we talk about much in the world of tech is that some of the skill sets uh, are tantamount to like, you know, not to put too fine point on it, but like law and order SVU levels yeah. of being able to like deal with some, you know, grimy shit like and i think i'm reminded of like youtube moderators and some of the things that they have to look at and call uh at, at a remark at scale <laughs> right um and that you know that you know therapy is needed like the but, so but but we don't we don't usually think about that when we think about jobs in tech but that's a very real thing yeah i mean another whole topic we could spend a lot of time on is like content moderators and how we support them or don't support them which is you know another I think, tragedy of our time. Um, my mom is actually a psychotherapist. And she told me when I told her that I was going to work on some of the child safety work, 
she said she early in her career had worked with children who had been abused or parents who had abused their children and she said she regularly would have to like pull over by the side of the road and kind of douse her feelings in haagen because it was the 80s um to, <laughs> to comfort her um so she was proud of me for like doing the work but also could relate to it in a way that i didn't know anything about that yeah and it, it... It's just kind of like segue from this into the notion of, of slowing users down, which I want to talk to you about in a little more detail. One of the things, when I read about how poorly a lot of, especially international content moderators are paid, and I thought, oh, okay, what would happen if you paid them correctly? And if you gave them enough time to do their job, um, the internet would slow down, right? Yeah. It wouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to press this thing and boom, it gets uploaded immediately. And I'm like, would that be a bad thing? Right? What if we had a slower, kind of like the slow food movement? Like, what if we had a slow yeah. internet? internet movement? Like, yeah. is that necessarily, I don't know, just like your thoughts on like, is there a virtue in not just slowing individual users down, but just slowing the whole internet down? Are you, are, is, is it a, is it a fait accompli that fast is good? Well, I mean, I think latency, there's, latency is, is bad. I think it's, sure. right? Like, latency is frustrating. Uh, latency, conveys or telegraphs a bad product, right? And I think there's like a fit and finish argument to be made. In terms of how we intentionally build a product to slow people down and slow down their consumption, absolutely. I mean, mm -hmm. and that's one of the things that we'll talk about is how we build more intentional experiences that give people the information that they need in that moment to decide if they want to consume a particular kind of content, to mm -hmm. decide if they want to share a particular kind of content. Um, I argue regularly that you know Facebook's news feed is is so well designed and so smooth that you can't really distinguish one kind of content from another, and that's by design. And when it comes to low digital literacy users who can't determine the difference between something coming from CNN and something from like superfaco news.net, you know, because it all has the same treatment, or mm -hmm. something that's being paid for by a politician, and it all looks the same, it's impossible to kind of look for the, you don't really quickly see those markers of distinction that this is to be trusted or you need to go into this a little bit more wary with some more, you know, more concern. Yeah. I mean, I even think about things like uh, recency or serial position effect where literally where it is on the page, I will make assumptions about how important or authoritative it is. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so let's get into that then. Let's talk about like, one of the things I talk about in my book is this um, idea that we inherit as designers this idea of uh, the glory of frictionless experiences that, you know, and then friction is bad, right? Like it, users should be able to do something quickly, seamlessly, without even thinking, blink of an eye, boom, it's done. But, you know, we are learning that that's not always the best for our users. So can you talk a little bit about how you've worked to sort of think about when is it a good idea to slow users down and then how do you do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right, the faster we move, the faster we react, the more likely we are to make Kind of reactive decisions. Um, so I've been working on a project for the last six months or so. It's called um, Reshare Friction. So when you see a post on Facebook, um, you can reshare it, right? And so content that is shared over and over and over and over again, um, that is a known misinformation vector because people see content and they go like, oh, that's crazy. And then they forward it or they share it. And there's kind of a really good analogy. Remember back in the day with email, when we used to open those, if in the subject line it said like forward, 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 it was an indicator that this might be of low quality, right? 
So how do we convey that same idea within the experience itself? So what we started to dig into and understand was that with this kind of reshared content, deep reshared content, there was all this other information that we could convey how fast it was spreading, where it was coming from, if it was coming from a domain that was new uh, or a well-established domain, um, if the content was out of date, if it was coming from a piece or from a source that you might not actually find until like six clicks deep in, on Google, right? So we took all this information and we went out in the field and my job was to say, okay, how might we convey these signals to users in the moment? And how do they understand them? And how does it influence their decision? So if they're gonna share a piece of content and an article say, and it comes up and says, oh, um, this piece is, you know, this article is sharing, being shared very quickly. Well, we know it's a bad signal to then they might read it as, oh, it's being shared really quickly, must be important, right? It's going viral, I'm gonna share it too. Um, but if we let them know that, oh, this article is two years out of date or was posted originally two years ago, they're like, oh, well, then I understand that it's not, maybe not relevant and I will hold back on sharing it. So that was the program that we developed, was determining what is the information that we can share in the moment that actually comes up as an interstitial between when somebody taps share and when they actually are able to share it. Yeah, and we've, and we've learned that those like little speed bumps can be really impactful. I think mean, I remember the story of Trisha Prabhu who created Rethink, which, mm -hmm. If you're about to post something, you know, potentially harmful, would yeah. pop up this little interstitial that said this might be harmful. I'm sure you want to do it. And in the, uh, I think it was the adolescent um, initial test group, like 90% of people stopped, you know, wouldn't share it. Like it yeah. was just even that little bit of um, self-reflection caused them to reconsider. Have you, have you, is it at the point now where you've started to see results on this or is it too early to tell? No, we have. Um, I, I probably can't show the exact numbers, sure. but I can, can indicate that like, so the interesting thing for out of date specifically is that um, we needed to limit on what we were sharing, showing this on, right? So a recipe that has been posted two years ago, it's irrelevant to give that information, but news and health information, that's more relevant. But fun wrench to throw in it. We're also developing this in the time of COVID. So two years for a health thing is actually way out of date. In fact, three months are as well. So we developed an entirely different interstitial that was just saying, hey, this is about COVID and redirects to an information center. Um, but yeah, so for those two categories for health and um, news, we have seen a decline in misinformation being shared. Um, so it's, it's been, it's had a big impact. I'm, I'm like wanting to share the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will take your word for it. No, but that's, that's great to hear. Although, so the content strategist in me is hearing that and thinking, oh my God, that has got to be a super complicated content model, right? Because now I've got to think about aspects of time as part of the schema that is a news item. And like, just to go super deep, you know, into content strategy here for a minute, and then break that down into not just, okay, I need to think about months. I need to think about years. Like, no, I need to think about, in some cases, conditionally weeks or days. <laughs> I mean, so the, the wonderful thing about working at Facebook is like, I actually didn't have to think about that. Okay. <laughs> like we have so much infrastructure and so many standards that already have like solved, have solved the meaning of time. Uh, mm -hmm. So it was, I could just kind of plug it in as just a, um, a dynamic form field and, and, and of course check it, but then mm -hmm. just have to do it for me. So I, a lot of what I talk about in the book is this notion of 
you know, waking designers up who might not be aware of just how impactful their work is, right? That the things, this is, the way that you were designing something, the language you're using could have impacts on your user that they may not even realize. So you need to be really thoughtful. You have this great responsibility. I feel like at Facebook, that's a, a somewhat more known thing <laughs> that there, there are things that, that people are doing where it's, it's at this point pretty well known that, you know, if you show that someone has voted, the people who see that are more likely to vote. Like that is a huge, you know, responsibility almost, right? I guess the question I'm getting at is like, how do you, when you come to work and that's, you realize that, especially working in integrity, that, that your job as a content strategist isn't just pushing pixels around. Like, how do you, how do you show up for that? Like, how do you think about that? I, I, it's definitely true for me. And I hope this is true for other people as well, that like it is like a little bit of fear and a whole lot of responsibility. Like when we think of the numbers, of the number of people that we're reaching, I'm often terrified by it. Um, I have personally been in talks with engineers or with people who are developing tests, like, oh, it's only a 1% test, right? And I'm like, okay. And it was on a, um, a memories product, right? So this is back on it before integrity. This is this thing, you know, this is what you're doing two years ago. And I said, 1% is still millions of people. I said, this is their content. This is their memory that we're showing to them and asking them to you know, conceive or frame in a different light. That was the, what the particular test was. We're changing people's memories and how they're viewing their memories at the scale of millions. And I know we're saying it's just a 1%, but I never want to hear the word just and 1% together yeah. talking about the scale of 2 billion. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because like there's a phenomenon where weirdly we are able as humans to get our head around one person and their story than like statistics and numbers. So 1%, yeah. a million people. But if I tell you one story, like this is one of the powerful things about Sarah Walker Betcher's uh, Technically Wrong. She can sort of tell one story about, you know, how pre-integrity, a memories product, like created a terrible experience for this one user. And that's super memorable. Yes. And it's also, it's almost like, well, even if one person's getting affected by that, like we're going to remember that Yes. Even if like, you know, uh, more than we'll remember, oh, a million people. Yes, um, absolutely. I think my husband is, my husband has accused me of having like, I can do empathy at scale. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like one-to-one, not so much, right? Like I'm, yeah. But like, I think at scale, I can definitely understand and extract for the larger mm-hmm. impact of the work that we do. Um, yeah. So the, the, the other thing I wanted to make sure, you know, we covered today is uh, this notion of like measuring impact mm. um, and how easy it is to measure, which is another thing I talk about a lot in the book is how easy it is to measure the wrong thing, uh, especially if that thing is easy to measure. <laughs> we assume it has this importance that it might not have. And I want to talk a little more about how you've been thinking about that lately. Um, yeah. I mean, when it comes to this interstitial that I'm working on, it's pretty, I think the metrics are right. You know, we're measuring how much misinformation or bad content is, uh, and not bad content on the platform, because I think it's like, oh, if it's bad content, why is it taken off? But of low quality content that, that would otherwise have broader reach. I think a different project that I worked on was one where I was kind of shocked at what we were measuring and in terms of what we were building. So this was, um, we we're essentially trying to measure, so the product was called Tips. And it was one where if you say you blocked someone, a couple days later, we would send a little interstitial to the or top of your feed that says, oh, hey, um, this is what happens when you block someone. And it just gives a little bit more information about it. 
um, you click a link and you go to a help center page that tells you a little bit more about what blocking means. So I didn't love that we were going off to a help center, but I did like that we were giving education to people at the right moment, at the right time, where it was really relevant. Um, and I was trying to think about, oh, you know, how can we make this better? Well, what we were measuring wasn't click-through and what we were measuring wasn't, you know, some sort of task completion or were people understanding if they could do the thing. What we would measure a couple days later was by a survey, and this has kind of been screenshotted out in the world a number of times, um, which is, do you think Facebook is good for the world? I need everyone on the call to stop laughing. Uh, <laughs> As if they weren't all on mute right now. <laughs> no, but it was, it was, a, it was what's called a sentiment metric where mm. we're trying to boost a perception of the company. And this Facebook is not the only company that does this. This is done. This is a known practice. Um, but for me as a content strategist, the way of, that by which we were doing it is that we were kind of showing up and being supportive and being useful. So did people think that we cared about them? And where I kind of ran up against the rocks on this particular product was that I wanted to be more useful for people. I wanted mm. us to do better than go to health center content. I wanted to do better for especially low digital literacy users uh, to make sure that they were understanding what it is that we were conveying to them because it is a complicated product. And so when it was, no, we're still going to continue to measure this thing that I didn't really believe in, that's where I decided to, to move off of it because it was just, we were, we were just stuck. From my mind, it was a good product measuring the wrong thing. And for that reason, it really couldn't evolve to somewhere that I thought would be genuinely good for people. Yeah, and that's actually an interesting sort of consequence of choosing the wrong metric. It's not just, hey, now you're going to have these false signals right. around the quality of your product, but you might stun its growth. Right. I mean, I think you talk in the book about like how people end up gaining the product for the metric. We would absolutely gain stuff. And, and we would you know, do A-B tests for, for content choices, um, headlines, stuff like that. And again, it, and we we're measuring about this metric that was a, a little bit weird to me in what we were measuring, but also how we were measuring it. So it kind of just felt like a, a little bit of a crapshoot. And you know, once my heart isn't in it, I'm like, I can find my face. Yeah. So how would you like? How do you think about like building the perfect metric? Like, what's your like? If if they sort of said, you know what, you're right, Margo. Let's let's come so up with a completely different work. metric. Just <laughs> send that oh, in a card. Um, uh, but what would be sort of your process for thinking through, how, like, how would you arrive at a better metric? I mean, I think for me, I'm always going to ground my work in what I think is good in terms of user value. So mm -hmm. understanding, like, for that particular product, it would have been about task completion. It would have been mm. about understanding. It would have been something a little bit more concrete. Um, I'm not really as well versed in like various kinds of metrics as I could be, though I will always ask the question like, oh, how do we measure success for this? Just so I know what I'm moving towards. But yeah, I'm not sure. I think I, it's like, you know, I know when I see it. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Right? Um, so I'm gonna remind folks, uh, feel free to post uh, questions in Slack, uh, in Slack, in the chat. I just assume all chats are Slack and all Slacks are chat. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I try to, you know, talk through in the book um, is, and that, and that I'm very uh, like keenly aware of when I give talks about design for cognitive bias is this notion of like being put on the spot as a change agent in your company or for your client. 
and like how power plays into that and how like I, I try to never to make assumptions about how much power someone has walking into that situation, right? Or how much voice they have or how much risk they'll have to take to like raise the red flag about this, that, or the other. Um, so I'm curious from your position, especially as someone who like ran into the fire, <laughs> right? So, uh, like how do you think about or what strategies and tactics have you kind of evolved for like presenting your case, you know, motivating people, like what's, what's in your kind of playbook for like advocating for the things you believe in, in a, in a corporate environment? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, so not only do I work on the integrity products, but I've been a really active and strong voice kind of in, internal dissent as well. Um, to the point where like, if you remember the open letter from last year, I was one of the organizers of that about kind of how we deal with, um, paid misinformation, as I called it, uh, where we wouldn't fact check political ads. So, I mean, and I've had varying degrees of success. I think with that particular group of people, we really, I led a pretty good groundswell of a kind of a collection of voices that I don't think I'd seen before um, within Facebook. And I think it's because they do a really good job of placating and creating a situation where it's like, you feel like you're being listened to, but nothing really happens. Um, and I just kind of, for whatever it's worth, I'm stupidly fearless. <laughs> and I'll just kind of say the thing that's on my mind. And it's not always, I don't know if it's always the most effective, but sometimes it is. Um, and I can kind of be a bit blunt and direct about it. And that, and it comes, you know, both in terms of like internal communication and just kind of how I present and speak. Um, and like I said, I think it comes with varying degrees of success. There's sometimes I think I push too hard and maybe undermine things, but I think there's sometimes where you raise your voice and other people are inspired to do the same. Yeah. And I think when you start modeling that behavior that a, like you can dissent without any negative actions. I wasn't fired. Um, you know, that you, it's not, it's a little, maybe it's a little less scary than people think it is. Um, that, that itself can create a culture um, of kind of speaking up and advocacy. I, I do think the content strategy is advocacy, mm. uh, that we are there to represent the people who aren't in the room, um, to, not, to make sure that we're not designing for ourselves and we're not solving our own problems. Um, so I think it's that approach that guides both my work in meetings and then my work in the broader culture. I think that's a really interesting point to bring up about sort of the the first follower effect, right? That that it's not necessarily just about what you are advocating for in the moment, but the example you're setting by advocating at all. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like there's definitely a strategic aspect to that to find when are the moments where it's not just about trying to get this point across, but it's also about setting an example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it drives my lawyer husband a little nuts about how kind of reckless I can be. Uh, not that I'm reckless, is that I, I'm not as risk averse as he is, because I'm like, what's the worst that can happen? And he's like, everything will happen. <laughs> um, and it doesn't. So I just, and I acknowledge that, like being inside the company, um, coming from a place of privilege, um, that even if I lose my job, it isn't the worst thing in the world, that I feel, I felt at the time and continue to feel a responsibility um, to use that space to do as much as I can. Yeah. 
So I want to talk a little more about the the low digital literacy like talk you're working on here. What's kind of the gist of it? What are you trying to to get across? Yeah, I mean, it is basically that, which is that I, the story of it is, um, the thing that kind of called everything into sharp relief for me is that I went on a research trip to Miami to learn how people learn. And we were really talking to people who we had identified as low digital literacy users. And that means um, they know they can get on the internet but they may not know how to navigate it safely. And in terms of demographics, that might look like older people, people new to the internet, low income, talk to a felon, which was really interesting, people who've been kind of like locked away in a box and then all of a sudden they have to find a job with this new tool, right? Mm -hmm. So we went in learning how they would learn. Did they need books? Was it about talking to somebody? Was it about, you know, just kind of hunting and pecking? And what we found out was our bias was showing and Mm -hmm. that not everyone is a learner. And it's not about the modality of learning. It's about how you design the product from the outset. Hmm. So what that called for me was like this huge gap between the people who build the products and the people who use the products. Because low digital literacy is not an edge case. It's not a stress case. It's not a small population. It's probably most of users of the internet. Um, And so when we are continually designing for ourselves and testing with one another and kind of solving our own problems, we're not doing it in a way that not only doesn't serve people, it's not safe for people. Mm. Uh, They're more susceptible to scams. They're more susceptible to misinformation because they don't know the signals to look for. Um, So the talk is basically about how to meet people where they are, how to design simpler products, um, how to not be novel for the sake of being novel, uh, to rely on old patterns, which is like a core accessibility play, um, but doing it with this population in mind. How much, because I think about that, it reminds me of a lot of work I see the UK uh, doing around their uh, government websites. Um, and a lot of it is around trying to make things more usable for populations that are not like them. Yep. Um, and thinking about things like English as a second language and, and, and things like that. And it leads to very... Uh, unglamorous solutions. Absolutely. Right. And I wonder how much of our difficulty with embracing that, you know, not to put a too fine a point on it, it was just sort of ego. Like not oh. all of us got into, yeah. Got, <laughs> yeah. Like hundred percent. Like, you know what people want when they learn something new and they're afraid or if they think they like fuck something up, they want to talk to someone. They want mm-hmm. a 1-800 number. Um, and I, I'll talk about in my talk, like the butterball hotline is a perfect example of supporting people in their time of need, right? For those who don't know it, back in the day, like when you were cooking a Thanksgiving turkey and you were freaked out because everyone was coming over and the turkey wasn't cooking and the dark meat wasn't coming up to temperature, but the light meat was, you could get on a phone and call a very nice lady, usually a lady who would help you cook your turkey, right? And like kind of calm you down. It was a soothing voice in that moment. Like it was there to solve that very specific problem. So similarly, like call centers aren't sexy right? It's not using new technology. It's not AR, VR, and like bots, right? Um, it's, but it's what people need. And so much, so much of like designing good products is meeting people where they are. Yeah. Um, I'm just reminded of, there's an episode of the West Wing where President Bartlett calls the Butterball Hot. It's one of the just best. <laughs> <laughs> if you have Netflix, just go look that one up. It's fantastic. Okay. Um, yeah, that, 
That, that, that's true. Um, so I'm going to remind folks, if you want to drop questions into the chat, I always feel like a radio talk show host, yeah. like dial 555-CHAT if you have a, a question for Marco. What's our giveaway today? <laughs> <laughs> You've got a decal. I'm not entirely sure what that is, but we've got decals to give out. Um, so, so what do you do when you're not designing? Like, do you have, do you have a step away from the keyboard moment, like a go-to thing that keeps you, especially in the time of COVID, like sane <laughs> in, in terms of like, it's not all content strategy all the time. It is. Um, I mean, I do other things on the internet, which are probably not good. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, not, I mean, I talk to people, um, in terms of non-screen stuff, including like non-watching television stuff, I read, I've been tearing through novels. I just like, I've been reading a few novels a month. Um, I was baking a lot. Like I was continuing the sourdough trend like long after <laughs> everyone else was. But then my pants didn't fit anymore. So I'm like, okay, I've got to quit that. Um, I, I want to say that I play piano because I have a piano and I used to play a lot, but like I'm not playing as much as I should be. I, you know, the best thing that I've been doing is going on hikes. Mm. I go like on weekends, long hikes, long bike rides. And that has been the, the lack of being able to do that because of the air right now has been a serious, serious disappointment. So kind of, since we can't do that, I've just like last week, I just kind of scaled back um, and just was ready to like, just like watching TV in bed because I was just so sad about the state of the world. Super healthy See. stuff. So yeah, I, I would have yeah, I would have settled for like watching TV in bed. I'm like, yep, that's me. <laughs> I feel I feel seen. So yeah. that has actually spurred our first question. Uh, okay. So curious to know a few novels that you read that you really liked. Ah, okay. I'm gonna have to get out the Goodreads <laughs> or like go look. Um, the Island of Sea Women is coming to mind, um, and I really liked it. It was beautiful and but really depressing i was going to give it to a friend of mine who's actually like she's quite sensitive and she's like does anything bad happen like did any children get hurt and i like took the book back from her like, <laughs> <laughs> never mind bad idea um okay i'm looking at my goodreads because it tells me what i did because i can't you know my brain doesn't um oh ten thousand saints um that was a novel that had been like I think I remember my husband reading it years ago and it'd been like in our bookcase and I was like oh that's right I wanted to read that um oh the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo quality novel um the vanishing half was great the new Brit Bennett um oh Fleischman is in trouble another great novel that I enjoyed this particular pandemic oh and then um Oh, there were, I was going to say the Colson Whitehead Zone One. I didn't like, but of course that reminds me that how much I do like Nickel Boys. Cool. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I find myself. So those are all all fiction. Yeah, I, I mean, here's the thing. I've I've been reading a stack of like kind of strategy books too, um, because I may have alluded to it, but I actually I'm leaving. Facebook, I'm leaving Facebook on Friday. It's my last day. I'll, I'll drop that news here uh, for those who don't know, I want you to know. Um, and so I've been reading, kind of getting back into the core practice of content strategy because mm. I'm going to do something very, very different, um, which is that I'm going to a startup. So Google, Twitter, Facebook, 
startup, um, <laughs> <laughs> to, to really develop a content strategy practice from day one, mm-hmm. um, which is super, super exciting um, to do something. Because a lot of the jobs out there are like, oh, we, we, we've been around for seven years and now we want to have our first content strategist. And you're like, oh, cool. I need to come in and tell everyone to do everything differently versus, you know, I get to get in from day one and say, oh, what if we did this? This is what our brand could sound like. What does our documentation look like? Uh, and developing a style guide. So I've been reading a lot of like content strategy books too. Which uh, which ones? Just out of curiosity. I read Andy and Michael's book. Okay. Uh, which was like, I'm I'm mad at them that that didn't exist when I was first starting out. Mad. I'm looking over at my book corner. Like, <laughs> what else? Uh, I'm like, and Sarah Richards' book has has been really great. Mm. Uh, it's just been kind of wonderful. What else is over there in the book? Um, it's not a content strategy book, but I really like it. It's a, such a businessy book, which I generally hate. It's called The First 90 Days. And <laughs> it's about starting a new job, um, either as a lead or starting kind of any new project or getting a promotion and just how to set expectations for yourself and for your boss and for your team about um, what you're going to do and how to be successful. It's again, super businessy, but I think it's actually pretty useful. So I'm, uh, for the folks in the, um, the chat there, so the Andy Walfley and Michael Metz wrote a great book called uh, Writing is Designing. Um, dropping the link for one of those in here. So what's Sarah Richards' book? Is that the content design? Yeah. Um, looking that up for folks too. But uh, uh, both uh, future guests on the show, by the way. So keep, uh, keep watching. Here's the part of my brain why I was still struggling. I'm like, I know there was another book, and it was your book. That was really- oh really? Oh, I yeah. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was really really good. So obviously, but all everyone here has read that, so I don't need to plug it because you know it's it's a, it's really good work. Uh, so I just threw oh someone else already put thank you Rafe put in um, the content design uh, link in there. Um, so no, that's that. So they're they're both going to be on later. That 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 that's cool. So what was I going to? Okay. So first off, <laughs> I will not press you to go into any more detail if you do not want <laughs> about leaving Facebook. But um, uh, but so I I you know pass or no on on that one. Obviously that was big news. But um, I'll, I'll tell you this because this is what I do. You can ask me any question you want, and if I don't want to answer it, I won't. Okay. So what I, what, I, what I do feel compelled then to follow up on, and yeah. I'll, I'll leave it at that, is given the discussion we've been having around this idea of showing up and advocating like one of the decisions, and again, this is sort of in the interest of folks who I know when I talk about this stuff want to kind of take the temperature, right, of like how to, how to, how to bring themselves to work, yeah. like what are sort of the factors one should consider when mm-hmm. saying, okay, you know what? this far and no further, or maybe there's an opportunity to me be more value in a different way. Like how, what kind of math is helpful to think about, you know, there? I think if I understand the question is like de- deciding how far to take something or like when to say this isn't working. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think I equate this to back decade, decade plus ago when I was dating and like, was, was there, was the, was the relationship still good? Was the good mm-hmm. still outweighing the bad? Mm-hmm. Right? And when that balance tips, I think that often will give you, you your answer. And for me at Facebook, it was, there are a lot of still good there. I am 
when I talk to people about it, I'm genuinely sad um, about leaving because I think it's such a strong content strategy team. I really love the work that I'm doing, what I was talking about with like the interstitial and the end restriction work. I think it's great. Um, what is the bad side of it is that I feel like we could be doing more work that we get in the way, our own way of, in the spirit or in the name of legitimacy, which mm. is, you know, are, is this going to get screenshot and put on Fox News? Are we going to get attacked from either side because of this particular work? And I think we serve that sometimes instead of serving user value first. And we know I care about user value a whole lot. Um, so I think that part of it is kind of what one part that tipped the scale. And the other was we make decisions on a regular basis that not only do I disagree with, but I don't understand mm. in terms of how we enforce our policy with how some people, not just that person, but how many people act on behave on the platform, what gets taken down. And those decisions often are done at the very top. And sometimes they're done within the policy space. And because I work on integrity and because I, you know, position myself as a designer, in order for myself to do my best work, I need to know the constraints under which I'm designing. And so understanding the decisions that we make clearly means, and, and actually not understanding them means that I can't really do my job. If I don't know the, the constraints under which I'm working, if I don't know what it is that we're solving for, mm -hmm. then I can't do my job. And that sense of frustration and that kind of like inability to make an impact in a positive way um, was kind of too frustrating, too difficult for me to bear. Um, so that was what spurred me. It was more like we had made another one of these decisions that I found confounding. And I felt, okay, I don't understand this one. I've railed against it internally as much as I can. I've seen the arguments. I've done everything that I can do it. I can't be here for the next time this happens. Personally. Like I won't, because, because I'm not only am I losing the ability to fight and feel like it's gonna have any impact, but I'm becoming cynical for those who are trying. Mm, yeah. And I don't want to poison the well, because like I said, I'm not perfect by any stretch in terms of like my ability and my advocacy and my approach. So if someone else can do it, I don't want to take that away from them. Right. No, that's, and it's funny too, because a, a piece of that comes back to that notion of metrics, right? Of like, if I don't know what we're solving for, if I don't know what the point is, like, how mm -hmm. do we how do I move forward? I mean, like, I, I, I feel you in that, like as a content strategist, like my emphasis is on the strategy part. Yeah. <laughs> like I am always the guy in the room asking why. Yeah. <laughs> but why? No, 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 I get it. But why? Yeah. Like yeah. I'm that five, six, seven levels of, so talk about the five levels. Why I like to go eight at least, <laughs> you know, cause if I don't know what we're doing here, I can't help you. Like right. I, I, I can guess, <laughs> I can tell you what other people do. Like, that's why I kind of hate the term best practices. Cause to me, that feels like a proxy for like, not really wanting to have a goal. Yeah. <laughs> Just imitate what someone else is doing. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, like who are we solving for? It often is like, well, everyone. And that's the problem. Like, well, who are we solving for more? Right. Yeah. That's the real question. Cause when you're designing for 2 billion people and a big, huge company, it's like, well, what are our priorities here mm -hmm. now? Because like the, because it's like, oh, the use case is everyone. Well, that doesn't help me, you know? <laughs> so it's like when you start to decide what is more important and is it the, com the perception of the company or genuine user value, that's kind of where I tap out. Yeah, and I feel like that conflict of interest, right? Like I talk to a lot of people who are starting businesses and are thinking about like, oh, we could do um, 
like ad uh, generated revenue, blah, 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 blah. And I'm sort of like, I get that. Yeah. Just understand you may, if you choose that route, and you could say the same thing about, you know, taking VC money or whatever. Sure. But if you go that route, you may put yourself in a position where there is going to be a time when what's best for your advertiser might not be what's best for your user or what's yeah. best for that venture capitalist might not be what's best for your user. Yeah. Like, are you prepared for that? Do you yeah. have a way of thinking about that? Like, I don't want it to be like hard line, absolutely never do advertising, absolutely never do VC, but it's more about uh, buyer beware. <laughs> or it's about going in with your eyes wide open and saying, yeah. okay, when it comes to making those decisions, what's going to inform them? So mm-hmm. I happened to meet this person on a yoga retreat, shut up. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> so she was building a brand new company and it was essentially like Slack for college students. Mm-hmm. So it was creating like walled garden communities um, where people could connect with one another. Right? And I said, oh, cool. How are you going to make money? You know, how, and she's like, oh, well, advertising. And I said, great. I said, are you going to let credit card companies advertise? And she was like, why? Because she was someone who didn't need, hadn't thought about that. And I thought, I said, well, credit cards are known to be predatory for college students and, and you know, it can compound the debt that they already have with their student loans and it can be a really, really bad practice. And she was like, oh, I hadn't thought about that, you know? And then, so that was like, that's what my job is. My job is to say, oh, have we considered yeah. what the impact of, of this is how we're building our business? And I feel like that's a super important job. I mean, and I, I, I am so thankful when people email me or whatever, or like when I was working with my editor. So I was working with, with uh, Lisa Maria Martin, fantastic at A Book Apart. And there was an example I've been, I'd been using in my talk for, for years um, to try to talk about like the role of like thinking about um, inclusion in, in a design system, for example. Yeah. Um, and I was using uh, a company that shall go unnamed, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Lisa Maria pointed out, well, you understand this company is kind of doing some sketchy shit. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I hadn't read that article. Ooh, that is not great. Yeah. Um, maybe I pick a different example. And I found one and it was a good example. It was maybe even a better example. But like, I felt better about the book then because yeah. even indirectly, I didn't sort of want to prop this thing up without considering right? What are the other kind of like net effects of it? Um, so one of the, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting when we sort of, so the idea that the integrity team was formed at a certain point in Facebook's history, or that, you know, um, uh, you get uh, inclusive like design practices forming two, three, four years into a company's existence or 10 years, yeah. like, feels typical but disappointing i guess and what i mean by that is i was having a conversation with an ethics professor who taught design ethics in like the netherlands or something and we were sort of talking about oh it's interesting like you know it's kind of you know like why why don't why aren't there more of these courses out there um why do we teach design and then ethics wouldn't it make more sense to teach ethics first and then design? And then we thought, is there a job I don't want you to know ethics before you know the purpose of the job? But the the idea that it would make so much more sense and be so much less effort, kind of what we're doing with content strategy at the company you're going to, right? Rather than wait seven years, get a bunch of bad habits, and then try to introduce content strategy. Like same with ethics. What if we just start with the ethics team and then build the product team? Yeah. Like I mean, the, it might be hard to do VC that way, but it feels better. <laughs> yeah, sign me up. You know, I think it's like, because I think the people who, I don't know, this is a huge generalization, 
But people, when they start companies, think that they are solving it from an ethical point of view and don't realize that there are going to be ethical quandaries um, as they layer on product functionality, as they you know grow an audience. I just think it's it's not there, and that's unfortunate. I think I am this, and that's why I was compelled to this new company, which is it's called Level, and it's um, it's about insurance, and I'm interested in it because it is like solving hard problems for people, um, and because there's potentially less drama. Um, so it's, and I also was because interested because it's it has been around for a couple of years. It's fewer than 100 employees, and I will be able to really start content strategy from nothing and that's or from very little so it's and the fact that they're investing in content strategy this early is a, a huge 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 good sign for me no that's excellent and congratulations let me oh, let me yeah. not fail to say uh checking out another question here yeah so this is a question coming in how do you make the most of the opportunity to design inclusively when the system has already been built mm -hmm. we're sort of touching on that before but like what are your any additional thoughts about that yeah, I mean, so like accessibility, right? Like mm -hmm. accessibility also. When I joined Facebook, I was, I felt like a kid in a candy store because I was like, oh my God, everything's going to be amazing. And like, there's going to be content strategy standards and a style guide, like things that I hadn't really seen at companies that I had been at before. And so I was like, oh, I can't wait to see what their accessibility team was like. And it turned out it was not as robust as I thought it was going to be. So I join and like met up with them and started to again do accessibility as a side project and build on what other people had done as kind of extracurriculars to see how we can make a more robust accessibility problem or accessibility program um the challenges of things that we could do and then the things that we could do that could be measured mm. right so while you know overarching design for low digital literacy and low literacy was really important it's a hard thing to measure but writing string descriptions is easier to measure, right? And that, so that's something that like, we could actually put funding behind or put people and resources behind. You say, hey, this is the impact that we made. Now we can go on to do these other things. So it's, it is, and I, I wasn't as involved in kind of making those decisions and making decide what was above the line and below the line. But I do know that like, I wanted to do everything for accessibility but it made sense to start with the things that we could measure in order to prove mm -hmm. the impact in order to do more and kind of get to the, the higher things. I think, I mean, that's what the, the, the 90 day book is a little bit about too, which is like choosing and setting your priorities for the things that are important to everyone, not just important to you. Um, kind of, it seems obvious, like going with, for the 90 days, like the first 90 days, going after the projects that are important to the person who hired you or to your boss um, in order to show that impact, so you can do the other things. Yeah, and that, I mean, I, it reminds me of what I almost always hear from clients is this idea of, yeah, 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 we want to do long-term, but get us some quick wins, yeah. right? And because it is like as much a political game and just a security game as it is a, we are actually changing things game. It's, it's I mean, the quick win thing, I think it gets like, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Because I think that at once it's like low hanging fruit and maybe it's not the biggest problem and that maybe it's harder than it seems, but especially for building a new discipline, getting quick wins is important for building credibility and building trust. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's worth doing. Yeah. It's as much an emotional thing as a, we need to design this literal thing for, yeah. for the, for the platform that kind of, um, uh, we're going to be wrapping up is one we one one I missed before that is actually kind of related to this, which is uh, what are some things we can do to make sure we're choosing the right metrics? Interesting. Um, 
again, like I said, I'm not, I, I have a great colleague of mine who is the metrics person. And mm -hmm. I would, I would like, if I would throw to her, if I could, um, I think it's about assessing what it is that you're measuring, right? Mm -hmm. And what it is that you're really measuring? Is it that you're measuring performance? Is it that you're measuring user value? Is it that you're actually like, for me, going back to that goodwill example or that tips example, we are measuring how people felt in an abstract way, not if they were learning something. And while measuring how people felt was important for the company, it wasn't as important for me personally. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, and then that, that team continued for a long time after I left. Um, and they still were building to try and make people feel a certain way about Facebook. Um, so I think it's in, in, you have to look in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> metrics of your heart and your instinct to determine like is it is it is this the thing you feel like you should be measuring i guess yeah. the other way to answer that is like what else might you be measuring what's another yeah. way to measure what you're what you're doing yeah and I, I would i would sort of ladder ladder onto that this idea of really trying to be as concrete and clear as you can about what is the goal of the thing that you're building that you are yeah. then measuring right yeah. so if it's sales and you decide to measure clicks well, great. Can you mm -hmm. point me to how clicks is an indicator of sales right. or is it just an indicator of clicks, right? It's easy to measure, you know, and that's great. But if it isn't actually telling you if you're getting the thing that you actually want, the results you want. So always start with what result do I actually want? And then yes. think about, is there a way to measure that? Yes. Um, that, that, that would be my other like sort of, sort of addendum there. Um, I think we've got time for literally one more question. Okay, so in business, there's a ton of thinking and optimization that happens. What are your thoughts design, about design's contribution in public sector to tackle bigger and more meaningful challenges like general elections or civic participation? So tiny little question to end right. us off. Just give me like three words, I'm sure. Go. Wait, restate it for me? Sure. So basically <laughs> like uh, thinking about how to tackle things like um, – public sector challenges that design is going to try to interact with. So general elections, civic participation, right? Yeah. Um, how does, what are your thoughts about design's contribution to that? Yeah, I think again, it kind of goes back to my feelings about low digital literacy, which is stop mm. for yourself. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Like, and go for the people who are the most vulnerable or who, who stand to, to be most excluded from the process or from the information, right? And I think I, when I, I breeze over saying like the core accessibility play that everyone knows, maybe we don't know, which is that when you design for the people who need it the most, or it'll benefit everyone. Um, curb cuts, right? Like they're meant for people who need wheelchairs and then anyone who's like dragging a stroller or you guys get it. So I think like focusing on the most vulnerable populations will inevitably benefit everyone with little to no downside. It's just good. That is a perfect note to end for and very much like, you know, what is on my heart of metrics <laughs> is how, how, how are we moving the needle for the, the most vulnerable? Um, thank you so much, Margo, uh, for your time. This has been a fantastic chat. Um, the, uh, some of the people were asking, like, will you be able to get a recording? Absolutely. This whole thing is going to be released as a podcast in the next couple of days. Um, we are going to be doing another our next episode is going to be um, with someone whose link I thought I had already up and I don't. So I'm going to stall by saying something that will shock and surprise you. <laughs> um, if anyone is a Simpsons fan, you'll get that joke. And that's something.
So I'll just tell you, it's Will Reynolds. It's going to be Will Reynolds uh, from uh, Sierra Interactive. This amazing guy, uh, amazing entrepreneur, and um, he's going to have a lot to tell us about, uh, going back to a former employee, um, Google and SEO and how bias sometimes plays into that. I'm going to post the link right into the chat now if you want to start getting tickets early. Algorithms are made by people. (laughs) Fun fact. (laughs) Uh, Algorithms are not written by Skynet. Um, So just pop that. Oh, and it just went to one person because that's how this works. I'm going to leave all this in the podcast because you just have to know how it all, I'm keeping it real. Um, Okay. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Margo. Um, For the Cognitive Bias Podcast, I'm your host, David Dolan-Thomas, and we will see you next time. Thanks.